Nelson, even though it was to Cochrane, Alberta, which not quite parallel to Nelson, but it was nice to see family and had their side of the family. Uh, and I want to thank our SLT and Jim Weidrich for leading the service last week. Um, it was really, really powerful. I listened to Jim's message and um, yeah, I was really impacted by it personally. I loved his story of meeting Stephen when he was a, a young adult in university. And if you weren't here, he basically said that uh, it was an outreach worker and Stephen uh, threw some dialogue with Jim, kind of sussing out where he was at faith-wise and Jim was kind of like, yeah, yeah, I'm Christian, blah, blah, blah. But Stephen kind of read through that and realized Jim's faith was kind of a second-hand, sparse, thin faith in a lot of ways. And Jim confessed that over the course of this conversation, very graciously, Stephen kind of sussed him out and said, how can your faith be real if you don't actually know what's in the Bible? And for Jim, that set in motion, that was a spark that God used to set in motion a earnest seeking of God. He said he took the next year to read through the Bible and then has repeated that pattern at different times in his life and has been in Scripture. And that's where he really began to own his faith for himself. And one of our affirmations as a covenant church, in fact, it's our first and in some ways central affirmation, is that we affirm the centrality of the Word of God. The message version of 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, there's nothing like the written Word of God for showing you the way to salvation through Christ Jesus. Because every part of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we are put together and we are shaped for the tasks God has given us. And so that's why the Covenant Church has always affirmed that the dynamic, transforming power of the Word of God directs the church and the life of every Christian. And that's why we carve out a chunk of time on Sunday. It's just about to happen where we actually look into the Word of God, not as individuals, but as a church, as a community. And we allow it to sharpen us and to teach us and to poke us and to prod us and to expose us. And then we reflect on it and then we hopefully respond with an open heart and a willingness to follow Jesus in light of what the text says. Digging into the Bible, learning about it, wrestling with awkward, difficult questions that arise as we engage it, that's all part of what it means to make your faith real. So let's pray to that end this morning that God would use this time to spark a deeper and more real faith in him. Let's pray. God, as we open up First uh, Samuel 14, this Old Testament book from thousands of years ago, I just pray that um, through your Spirit you would make it really real to each of us, that there would be something here that is a note of grace, a note of encouragement, that really puts wind in our sails, that reveals things that maybe we've been avoiding, facing, but God, it does so in a way that is redemptive and restorative. God, use your word this morning to shape us and to build our faith and to make it real. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in 1 Samuel 14. I couldn't put it in the bulletin because it's super, super long. <laughs> it's a long chapter. 
I was like, am I going to cut this thing in two? And I'm like, no, I'm just going to rip through it and uh, come up for air at the end, connect it to the present moment. So we are moving through the book of Samuel, and I have made it a commitment to do one chapter a week, and we're in chapter 14. And, you know, at chapter 14 begins uh, as kind of part two to a cliffhanger. War is imminent between Israel and the Philistines, but after the last chapter, we realize Israel is outmanned. They're outgunned, as it were. They don't really have actual weaponry. They just have sharpened farm equipment. There's only 600 soldiers on Israel's side, and there's a cabillion... Uh, it really is actually a, quite a parallel at the start of the Russian invasion of the massive military and numeric advantage of the Russians against a very, very small Ukrainian uh, active military force. And so we're just setting the stage for what this attack or battle is going to look like. You can break this chapter into three main stories. Verses 1, and f- uh, verses one to 14 is Jonathan and his armor bearer launching an attack against the Philistines at Michmash. And then in the next few verses, it's God sending panic over the Philistine army and Israel actually ends up victorious despite the overwhelming odds against them. And then the last chunk is um, kind of the first 23 verses kind of say the event, this is what happened. And then starting in verse 24, you get kind of like a zooming in of some more details that weren't given in the first pass of the event. It helps to set the context more. And we read about a story that happened during this event where Jonathan eats honey and almost gets killed because of it. It's a weird story, but really, really very relevant for us today. Okay, starting in verse 1, and if you don't have your Bible in front of you, you can just kind of imagine things in your mind eye. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. So Saul, who's the king, he's staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migran. I want you to just make note of that. Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree. Jonathan is like, let's take the fight to the enemy. And with Saul were about 600 men. And it gives a, a list of some of them. Uh, Ahijah, who was the priest, he was wearing the ephod, which is sort of like a garment that is used to discern the will of God. It's connected to the ark and the temple. There's kind of a longer backstory there, but we honestly don't have uh, time for it. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phineas. So there's a throwback to some of the people that we met earlier in 1 Samuel. Um, no one was aware that Jonathan had left. So Jonathan and his armor bearer have this idea and they go off and the rest of the army is uh, none the wiser for it. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other was called Sene. And one cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, the other to the south toward uh, Geba. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost among those uncircumcised men. And that was a a term that referred to those outside of God's covenant because one of the covenants in the Old Testament, the covenant markers was to be circumcised as a male. And so to call someone uncircumcised was a a not so subtle way of saying they're outside of God's covenant, they're outside of God's plan. It was a term of derision. And he says, okay, we're going to, Go over, let's confront them. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And so right here, there's this immediate contrast set up between this really bold faith of Jonathan 
And the chutzpah faith, this daring, almost teetering on reckless faith, but Jonathan has it. And it's faith in God, not in his own abilities, not in the strength of his numbers. And there's a contrast here with his father, Saul, the king, who's in a time of war, war is imminent, but he's sitting under a pomegranate tree. And we'll maybe discuss more of why that is, but you're seeing this very, very uh, noticeable contrast. And then in a few more chapters, we're going to see that David and Jonathan form a really strong friendship. And you can see sort of the heart of their bond is that they're both um, uh, followers of God who love God deeply and trust God deeply and, and both display in their life a chutzpah of even if everyone around them is like, ooh, I don't know if this is a good idea. I don't know if we can trust God. Let's just play it safe. They have this instinct of faith to move in a different direction. So verse 7, the armor bearer says, do, that you all have, do everything that you have in mind. Go ahead. I'm with you heart and soul. And I love that. I love that this armor bearer never gets mentioned by name. But man, we need these people in our lives. We need armor bearers who aren't just like, yeah, good for you. All the best. God bless. But they're like, I'm actually with you. I'm with you heart and soul. I'm going to go into the battle with you. I'm not just going to cheer from the sidelines. Cheerleaders in our lives are awesome. But armor bearers who come alongside us are just so indispensable for moving into and facing and securing victory in the battles that we face in our life. And so if you have, and this is something I actually want you to do. This is one way you can respond to this message if you don't listen to anything else. Make a note of someone who's been an armor bearer in your life. Could be a family member, could be a friend, could be someone in this church, could be, doesn't matter someone who has gone with you into battle and you know if you had to go into battle again, they would be with you heart and soul and reach out to them today and just say thank you very much. I was reminded how, of how grateful I am for your influence in my life. So this awesome faith of Jonathan and in some ways an even uh, greater faith of his armor bearer. And then verse eight, Jonathan said, come, we're gonna cross over and let them see us. So we're gonna expose ourselves. And then if they say, wait there until we come to you, we're going to stay there. We're not going to go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we'll climb up because that'll be the sign the Lord has delivered them into our hands. So they show themselves to the Philistines and the Philistines are like, oh, look at those guys. All the Israelites who crawled away in the last chapter, they crawled away and they're in hiding. They're coming up from their um, place, their, from their caves. Their, their, and remember, caves were like... Uh, burial places in an ancient context. They're, com they're coming up from the grave. They're, they're, uh, they're finding some courage again. And it says um, that the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes. And they're like, why don't you come up here? We got a lesson to teach you. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, okay, that's our sign. Let's go. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So they're going up. Like they don't have the high ground. They've seated the high ground. The Philistines are like, oh, we see you. Come on up, we got a lesson to teach you. And Jonathan's like, everything is lining up for our victory. I see it. It's like, what? Jonathan, you are a crazy fool. But sometimes faith looks like foolishness. So verse 13, Jonathan's climbing up using his hands and his feet. He's got to scale this uh, cliff edge. And armor bearers behind him. The Philistines end up falling before Jonathan. And his armor bearer followed and killed behind them. And in this first attack which should have never even gotten off the ground. Jonathan and his armor bearer killed 20 men in an area of about half an acre. So it's this massive surprise victory. 
maybe not a surprise to Jonathan, but to certainly the Philistines. Now, let's move on to the next part. Then, verse 15, panic struck the whole army, the whole Philistine army. And those in the camp fled, and those in the outposts and in the raiding parties, and the ground shook, and there was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away, and Saul said to the men, muster the forces and see who's left us. Like he realizes someone's gone over to take the fight to the Philistines, and he's like, get everybody in rank. Like, what is going on? He's trying to figure things out. And when they did, they all noticed that Jonathan and his armor bearer aren't there. And so Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. And while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult of the Philistine camp increased more and more. It's getting more and more out of hand. And again, they're just, lo- they're just hearing and looking at this in the distance and being like, something's going on over there. And they're not doing anything, but the Philistine camp is kind of eating itself alive. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. So there's a weird thing going on here. And again, we don't have a lot of time to go into it, but there's some debate whether or not the text here says, Saul says, bring the ark, or whether he says, bring the ephod. It's probably the ephod and not the ark. There's some translational complications there. But the clue is that he tells the priest to withdraw your hand because the ephod used these jeweled stones to discern God's will. It was kind of like casting lots. You could put the stones in a pouch. You could put your hand in there. The priest would ask for, ask for guidance and you'd pull out yes or no or up or down or, um, you know, like, like a magic eight ball. You shake it and it's like, yes, no, maybe. I mean, that's a really crude parallel, obviously. But that was kind of the idea. And what Saul is doing here is he's asking the priest to consult God but then he's looking at what's happening and he's like okay we're done with the God stuff we're just gonna like just let's let's move into battle so this is seen as something where again Saul isn't waiting on God he's not waiting to get direction he's scanning the horizon and saying oh I know what to do in this situation so he's moving forward Um, verse 20 Saul and all his men assemble they go into battle And they find the Philistines in total confusion. They're striking each other with their own swords. Remember, Israelites don't have any swords. Only Saul and Jonathan had swords. Everyone else had sharpened farm equipment that the Philistines allowed them to sharpen at exploitive prices in the previous chapter. So God turns the weapon of the enemy against itself. And the Philistines are hacking each other down. There's a kind of a madness that has taken over the camp. And then the Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines, so some in Israel went over to the Philistine side because they wanted to be on the winning team. Um, They went back over to the Israelites. And when all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So there's this enormous turn of the tide in battle. And even non-soldiers and non-combatants who were fleeing, they take up the cause and fight. Verse 23, so on that day the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on from Beth-Avon. Now, I want to pause there because I think there's something interesting that really came to me after a lot of reflection. And I think there's an inference here in the text. This is not gospel, but I think it's worth thinking about. I think we can learn a lot from Jonathan uh, you know, as we contrast Jonathan and Saul's reaction to how they viewed the route to victory. Um, I think Jonathan, it seems like, 
is taking the, the war one battle at a time. He doesn't really seem to be thinking beyond, I'm just going to strike this Philistine outpost. But I wonder, because the chapter opens with Saul sitting under a pomegranate tree <laughs> when war is imminent, if Saul hasn't looked at the battle and he's done the calculations in his head at the high level of the war and kind of said, there, there's no way this is not winnable. And so Saul has gotten absorbed and overwhelmed by the lack of good prospects to win the war, and he's kind of retreated and collapsed. And if you're someone like me, you're also someone who, when there's a long war, when, there's, when you're in a war, it can be easy to try and pull back and to say, I really can't see how this is winnable. This war in this place in my life and my job and my marriage in this opportunity that I thought was, whatever it is, and then to, sh- then to feel overwhelmed and to kind of collapse into either self-pity or just passivity and give up. But I wonder if Jonathan isn't concerned about the war. He just says, I see an opportunity right here, right in front of me, right here. Well, Jonathan, what good is, good that is, gonna, what good is that going to do? The Philistine outpost, it's small. There's only like a, a handful of soldiers and then the other army is going to collapse in on you. Jonathan doesn't go there. He just stays faithful to the next thing. Eugene Peterson is famous for saying discipleship is about doing the next right thing. And you will never do the next right thing if you're trying to calculate, yeah, but what about 250 steps from now? How's that going to play out? You will get overwhelmed. That's been something that I've had to fight my whole life. I often don't do the next right thing or take the next course of action or step out in faith because I'm trying to think, well, but I need to know what that's going to mean at step 5, 15, 35, two years from now, 10 years from now. And this to me is like God saying, just learn to fight one battle at a time. Trust the war to God and fight one battle at a time. And literally in real time, we're watching right the Ukrainian army do that. You, they are not getting overwhelmed with the war. Every, you know, Russia thought it was going to be a four-day operation. The Ukrainians are like, today. What do we have to do today? What do we have to do today? What about next week? We can't think about next week. And that's where we have to get to. That's where I have to get to, right? God, give me today my daily bread for the battle that's right in front of me. I'm going to be faithful in this battle. And so trusting God often looks like setting your sights on the next battle and not trying to anticipate how the whole war is going to be won. So that's the event. And now in the next few chapters, we zoom in and kind of go through the event again, but at a bit more of a ground level and see some details that even make the story more remarkable. So the Israelites were in distress that day. So during this battle, as all of this is playing out, they were in distress because Saul had bound the people under an oath. He said, cursed be anyone who eats food before the evening comes before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops had tasted food. So Saul makes this completely arbitrary, rash, irrational, punishing oath. Like it actually doesn't help anybody. It just punishes his own men. You know, and the text isn't clear, but like why does he do this? Is it to sort of make sure they're super committed and focused, which doesn't really make sense? Is it to satisfy his own ego? I mean, either way, it's a terrible idea. And that reminded me uh, that 
to mention that I think one of the things we want to look for in unhealthy leaders or unhealth as leaders is our propensity to make very reactive, impulsive, punishing um, expectations towards ourselves or towards people under our influence and care. And when we are dealing with overwhelmed or insecurity like Saul is, sometimes it's very easy for us to kind of hand that punishment on to someone else. And unhealthy leaders do that. Healthy leaders learn to absorb it in themselves and process it through prayer and through a number of different means. But often, unhealthy leaders are driven by fixations and compulsions. Right? Notice there's a self-centeredness to Saul's desire. He doesn't say, I'm giving you this oath because no one's going to eat until we do the right thing for God and show God awesome. It's like, no, not until I've avenged my enemies. So there's a real self-centeredness that drives Saul's oath. And so in verse 25, we read that they go into the woods, the army, and Jonathan hasn't heard about this oath because he was away on his kind of guerrilla warfare attack. And there's honey in, in the forest, and the soldiers are passing by, and Jonathan's like, I'm starving. Takes his staff, eats it. He's like, oh, that's so good. Bible says his eyes were brightened. And then a soldier in verse 28 says, dude, what are you doing? Your father bound the army to an oath. Cursed is anyone who eats food today. And Jonathan's like, my father has made trouble for the country. And that's a very sanitized way of saying it, right? It's like, my dad's an idiot. Like, what? This is the stupidest, this is the dumbest oath I've ever heard of. He's like, look at how my eyes have brightened. Like, I already feel immediately better. How much better would it have been if the men eat, had eaten some of the plunder they took from their enemies? Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? What is my dad thinking? And then in verse 31, it says, that day after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines, they were exhausted. And so they pounced on the plunder and they took sheep and cattle and calves and they butchered them on the ground right there and just started feeding on the raw meat with the blood in it, which is forbidden in Leviticus. One of the commands to God's people is you don't eat meat with the blood in it because blood is symbolic of life. The life of the creature is in the blood. And it's one way of God saying, you don't gain life by eating the blood from something else. You gain life by allegiance and obedience to me. And as a reminder of that, you will not do what the other nations do and think, oh, I will eat the blood, the, the life force of this animal, and that's how I remain strong. God says, no, you remain strong by staying in right relationship with me. So this is a big, big no-no, and the whole army does it, but they've reached the point of madness, right? They're exhausted, and they're just ravenous. And then Saul hears about it, and someone says to them, look, look, the men are sinning. They're eating meat that has the blood in it. And then Saul says to them, to the soldiers, as you have broken faith. You've, you've broken your vow. Roll a large stone over here at once. Go out among the men and tell them, each one of you bring your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat it. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. Now, what's weird here is not that Saul calls out the sin of the soldiers, because it is technically a sin, but there's no recognition that he's put them in this position. So his own reactive leadership, his own immaturity has backed them into the corner where they feel like they're faint and they're ravenous. 
Then they act out of desperation, and he's like, I can't believe you guys have sinned. Brutal. Brutal. I'm ashamed of you. Here, this is the way you do it. And it's like Saul, I don't know if he can't see or he won't see his own responsibility, but this is something we saw in the last chapter. Saul has a hard time taking responsibility for what is his to own. It's very easy for him to say, oh, you failed me, you didn't show up on time, you ate the meat with blood in it. But he has a hard time saying, but what part do I, do I play a part in this? And if I do, how much? And if I do, how, what does repentance and confession look like for me? This is a huge blind spot in Saul's life. And all of us need to be aware of this, but especially leaders. We need to understand that leaders have to be people who are leading the way by confessing their own sin, not other people's sin. It's really easy as a leader, an immature leader, to confess other people's sin and to turn a blind eye to your own. Or Jesus said it this way. He said, you know, um, how about you remove the plank in your own eye before you fixate on the speck of sawdust in your neighbor's eye? It's not th- there may be sawdust in your neighbor's eye. There might be something that needs to be called out. But what you should first do <laughs> is, am I harboring something similar in my life? Right? Saul should be saying, I can't believe these soldiers wouldn't honor probably my oath, but also my oath to God, and honor God in this. But he doesn't even stop to say, but I'm their leader, and they're taking their cues from me, so is that, a, is that something that I haven't been modeling? Everyone brought the ox. They all eat kind of properly. Saul built an altar there, but it was the first time he had done this. So even setting up right ritual is kind of done in a reactive way, more to get out, of, out from under a mechanical disobedience to God. So Saul says, let's go down and pursue the Philistines by night, plunder till dawn. Let's leave none of them alive. And they're like, yep, let's do whatever seems best to you. But the priest said, well, we should inquire of God here. And Saul asked God, he says, should I go down to pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? But it says God didn't answer him on that day. So right away Saul's like, oh, something's gone wrong. Because God would normally answer me. I've I've made everything right mechanically. We did the sacrifices, so God should be telling me something. God hasn't. So now he's going to figure out where the problem lies. And he says, I want all the leaders of the army to come forward. And I want to find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. And none of the soldiers say a word. So again, another pattern here. A very, this is not from God. It's just an arbitrary, reactive vow that Saul makes. On my honor, we're going to punish the guilty, even if it's my son, he's going to die. You know, watch for people in your life and certainly leaders who, um, who can default to very extreme vows, are very hard on themselves, hard on other people. That kind of extremism. Saul could have said, I want to find out what went wrong and I'm going to make it right. But he goes to some crazy extreme where someone's going to have to die because of this. 
And that just shows the lack of health. And it's arbitrary, it's cruel, it's unjust. It's not driven by anything that God wants. But Saul's own interior chaos and anxiety and frustration, he can't control it. And that's one of the ways it comes out. He just tries to show strength through extreme. And a lot of people can gain, you can gain purchase as a leader by trying to show strength through extreme rhetoric, extreme shows of power, but that's not actually real strength. And as you get older, you learn to discern that that's actually often coming from interior chaos and brokenness and immaturity, and it's not coming from a place of spiritual health and certainly not coming from a place of deep and sincere connection with God. Saul said to the Israelites, you stand over here. I and Jonathan are going to stand over here. So they do this lots thing with the, um, um, the Urim and the Thummim, which are these two stones connected to the ephod. And it's, it's kind of a way of, of whittling down where does the problem lie. And Jonathan and Saul, their side was taken by Lot. And then they cast lots and Jonathan is taken or chosen. And so Saul says to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan said, well, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. And the inflection in the Hebrew, most, uh, as far as I can tell, Jewish scholars say, it's not like, it's not Jonathan agreeing and saying, well, here's what happened. I tasted the honey, and now I must die. It's more, I tasted the honey, and like, I'm going to die for that? Like, Dad, like, look me in the eye. Like, you're seriously going to kill me because I was famished and I took honey? And you're going to kill me in front of all these people because you've got some insecurity that, well, you, you've made the vow. Now you're going to fall through with it. Want to be the strong man. Want to be in charge. Don't want to look weak to your soldiers. Like, really, Dad? Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. Saul, Saul's leadership is spiraling into chaos. He's just doubling down on bad decisions. Right? Don't do that as a leader. I always try and ask God, God, if I'm making a bad decision, help me to catch it quick. May it never snowball to a point where I feel so invested in it, I'm going to keep doubling down. Because when you do that as a leader, that's the consequence. That's always the consequence. Another human being or other people get thrown under the bus. And you end up saying, no, we've gone too far. This has to happen even if it pulls this people down, even if it destroys this person, even if it fill in the blank. And that is so, so dangerous. And leaders need to be self-aware enough, have mechanisms of accountability, be aggressively asking God to expose those areas of weakness and immaturity in our lives so that when we make mistakes, we, all leaders will, we can course correct quickly and course correct in a way that leads to actual repair and restoration. Thank goodness the soldiers see the absurdity of this and they actually intervene on Jonathan's behalf and they're like, why should Jonathan die? He's actually brought the victory. He was the tip of the spear. And so they basically say, um, not a hair of his head is going to fall to the ground. And I almost picture, the text doesn't say, but I almost picture them forming a protective ring around him and saying, you're going to have to go through us first. And they're saying this to the king. 
who has all authority, and they're like, we, we, can't, we can't participate with this. And that's a great, another great thing. We need people who will stand up, I mean, on, on the first level, to tyrants. Okay, so there's one level of analysis. But we also need people who are willing to do that in churches. When you have corrupt, abusive leaders, we need people like the Israelite army that says, what hap- what happens, what's happening here isn't right, and we're actually going to stand against it. And that might be awkward. And it's not peacekeeping, but we're committed to peacemaking. And we're going to make peace by confronting evil and immaturity wherever it manifests itself, even if that means the point person has to be called out and confronted. So the army steps in and it says the, they rescued Jonathan in verse 45 and he was not put to death. And so Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines and they withdrew to their own land. And then it says that after Saul assumed rule over Israel, this is kind of a summary statement, he fought against lots of enemies. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. Saul fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. Just to me a note there that um, it's, it's, not, it's not to baptize this, it's just to recognize really dysfunctional leaders can still good, do good things. But that doesn't mean that because they do these good things, oh, look at all these battles that Saul waged, he shouldn't have been confronted. And again, sometimes we do that in the church, right? The way this person does things kind of leaves awakened wreckage of broken lives, but look at what they're doing for the kingdom. Look at how many books they've sold. Look at their reach. Look at the influence they have. No one's perfect. So we sort of gloss over this because look at all the battles that they're winning. So there's nothing new under the sun. And I think this text is warning us that, again, leaders are not perfect, but we are allowed to push for godly leadership, which isn't perfect, but it is striving for serious holiness and integrity and is humble enough to course correct aggressively when they go off course. And I'm speaking that to myself, not just pastoral leaders. Uh, that is the same for us uh, as parents as we lead the home and our leadership within um, vocational context. Yeah. Okay. Lessons, lessons to learn. I said lessons, but there's really just one that I want to draw your attention to. And that is Life is war. Don't forget to eat some honey. (laughs) Life is war. Don't forget to eat some honey. Now, we don't call it eating some honey today. We call it self-care. But it's important. And this is a text that puts that front and center. Jonathan's eyes brightened. He was strengthened through physical nourishment after an exhausting battle. And nourishing ourselves in the midst of exhausting battles, especially protracted ones, like a pandemic, or any of the relational or emotional or psychological or physical battles that we're facing, nourishing ourselves is critical. Because you're not going to be able to sustain acting heroically and faithfully if you just keep punishing yourself and trying to willpower yourself into victory. 
I'm not going to allow myself to enjoy food until this happens. I'm not going to allow myself to enjoy honey. I'm not going to allow myself to enjoy a night's rest. I'm not going to allow myself, you fill in whatever the restorative thing is for you until the war is won. No, in the midst of the first battle, if God provides some honey, take it, be strengthened, keep moving forward. You're not being a hero by depriving yourself of care. Life is war. And if you don't eat some honey, then our bodies and our minds and our spirits will fail, especially on the day of battle. And we'll find ourselves like the Israelite army reacting out of desperation because we're starved. We're starved relationally. We're starved for rest. We're starved for affection. We're starved for nourishment. And we'll grapple at it from sources that are destructive. I love what this comment, and I tried to find it. I don't know um, which place I read it in this week. I couldn't find it after uh, the first few days. Failure to stop for honey is not time gained, but strength lost. Failure to stop for honey is not time gained, it's strength lost. And so for those of you who are um, maybe tempted like I am to think, well, I'll rest, just wait, until, just a little bit more, a little bit farther, push a little bit harder, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. I'm not actually being more efficient. It would be more efficient and effective to just stop and to allow God to bless and refresh, refresh me and brighten my eyes. Now, what honey looks like to you is gonna be different than what honey looks like to me, but you can use that metric of heart, soul, mind, and strength to think about the the things that nourish us, like genuine, not the stuff that we know we should do, like the things that actually nourish us, the, the, the particular friendships and community, the unhurried time in reflection or journaling or long, long quiet walks in the forest or, or listening to worship music, Sabbathing, hobbies that stimulate and inspire us and let, let our minds rest, uh, exercise and nutrition. These are all examples of different ways that God opens up opportunities for us for us to nourish ourselves. But again, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't pull this picture back to a significance that we should all have, which is the word of God itself is likened to honey. Psalm 119 says, the psalmist says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And ancient rabbis, before they would teach or begin teaching children, they would have children dip their finger into a honeycomb and put it on their lips and to say, that was sweet, but what we're going to do is even sweeter. You're going to be exposed to the Word of God. And so that's why it's important, even if it feels awkward at times or we don't really feel like always we're being nourished by it, to trust that like one of the ways that God nourishes us is through the honey of His Word. Jim shared, I think, uh, different ways that he does that in his life and devotionals he uses and apps that he uses. The particular methodology doesn't matter too much as long as we're in the Word and being shaped by the Word and feeding on it. And so we need to find a pattern. We need to find the right resources. If you need help, please contact me. Say, I really find getting into the Bible awkward or boring, but I don't want it to be. It's not sweet to me. Can you help, Jeff? I'll absolutely help you. You don't need to feel shame. If you've been in church for 50 years and you're like, I just think the Bible is kind of lame and boring, but am I, am I missing something? Like, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I, I want to get into this. Don't feel any shame or embarrassment. Just 
let me and Rick and other people help you get some good honey. But the honey of the Bible is even, has a deeper relevance to us as Christians because it's Christ himself who's referred to as the word made flesh. He's the honey made real. And so it's not just about combing through the Bible and just information packing our brain. It's actually learning to feed on Christ. To spend time with him, to unhurried time, to ask him for help, to cast our cares upon him, to abide in him, to keep short accounts with him, to be in relationship, walking with Christ through our life. So let that be an encouragement for you to do that. We need honey, we need places of restoration, but that should always be centered around making sure that we're carving out time to nurture relationship with Jesus. Just to close, um, as we move towards Good Friday and Easter, so much of First Samuel, the, one of the underlying qu- questions is, what makes a king great? Like, what makes a king great? Because you read in the Bible and you see in the world, there's a lot of corruption, bad kings, um, abusive, tyrannical. What makes a king great? Is it status? Is it stature? Is it military victory? Is it acclaim? And when you actually look at the depiction of great kings, kind of like the kingly archetypes, whether they arise from history or fiction or mythology or movies, uh, great novels. One of the things that I think is one through line of greatness in a king is their willingness to absorb the cost of kingship. They're willing to absorb the cost and the burden of kingship, including the cost of their own failings. And you see Saul has a hard time doing this. He has a very hard time avoiding, during a time of war, I just want to sit under a pomegranate tree. I want to kind of pretend this isn't happening. When he's confronted about stuff, well, I didn't really have a choice. But look at that person's sin over there. Look at how disobedient they're being. He has a hard time absorbing the cost that comes with kingship and leadership. He likes being king, but he's looking for ways to bypass the cost, avoid responsibility, or even placing the cost on those underneath him. But that's a totally different picture than we get with Jesus, who the New Testament proclaims as the king of kings. He's in a league all of his own. Why? Because he's willing to absorb the cost of kingship. And he doesn't have to absorb his failings or failures because he doesn't have any. But he's willing to absorb yours and he's willing to absorb mine. That's how great this king is. He'll take the cost that should be placed on us. And he says, I'll bear it. And so he goes to the cross. Um, The one side of the cliff. That Jonathan goes down. Where is it? Oh yeah, Bozes. Bozes is a Hebrew word that means thorn or thorny way. And so you're seeing this illusion through Jonathan, the king's son who goes down by way of the thorn and comes up Shenez, which is the shining path, in order to defeat the enemies of God. That's what we're seeing moving into Good Friday. We're seeing Jesus go down by way of the thorn, crown of thorn, 
goes to Golgotha, goes down into death, and then resurrects. Goes up the shining way and overcomes sin and death and the devil. And then says to you, come follow me. He is the great king, the worthy king, the source of life, the source of hope, the source of power. He is the sweet, sweet honey that we need to experience restoration for the battles that we face. So feed on him, find your eyes brightened as a result, and discover strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Let's pray. God, this is a big chapter. Um, It's a long chapter. It's dense. But I just pray that you would bring even one clarifying conviction to bear on each of our lives. God, help those who lead within the context of this church to lead well, to learn these lessons from Saul's failure and the example of um, those like Jonathan and his armor bearer who move forward in faith. Course correct us where we need God. Grow us up. Thank you for being an amazing king. We want to follow you. We want to be formed by you. We want to be formed into your likeness and image and character. Do a work in us. Amen.